0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Hey, okay, we can begin. Um, I just first of all wanted to acknowledge we have some guests in the room. Welcome. <clears throat> um, so, the talk tonight is about facing and opening to what's difficult. When I look at that title, I realize it's really broad, isn't it? Opening to what's difficult. Um, And in particular, those painful mental states that seem a little intractable, that have teeth, and that visit us often, maybe in the form of some narrative, some story, some event in our life, comes back as a memory um, that we identify with as me, as mine, and as a problem. So I've just been looking at this in my, in my own mind, you know, with the question of how do I work with this skillfully? Because it feels a little scary. It feels a little dangerous, like like there's a lot of power in this particular mental state a lot of emotion and if i'm not careful with how i handle it there's going to be a path to health right that's sort of the feeling i have around it as mark uh mentioned yesterday there is this wholesome fear here so you know there is some skill maybe in that fear but i think um, we can investigate you know what is the attitude of mind toward these difficult mental states, you know, and they're often strong emotions. And they're unpleasant. And we want to fix, we want to destroy, we want to ignore, you know, and or we want to see it as a teacher. So I think all of those above can be true for each of us. So what is the mental attitude in the mind toward these difficult mind states? So maybe even as you're sitting here now, you know, just bringing to mind without judgment like one particular strong emotion, for instance, that you've been working with. How it's appearing in your mind. What has been the attitude toward it? Is there a compelling narrative that you really suffer with? Particular betrayal, a fear, a regret? An idea of who you are that you don't like? So for me, it feels that it's important that these kinds of scary states of mind are seen and understood, as opposed to suppressed and ignored. So in Pali, there's the word kalesas, mental states that cloud the mind. And in English, that's often translated as defilements. Um, I've also seen some other translations like carnal faults and poisons. And it just seems like such high drama, you know. (laughs) Um, But it can feel like high drama, you know, when we're in the throes of an addiction or we're in the throes of rage, you know, it can feel like high drama. So the first three kalesas are the famous ones, the grossest manifestations of greed, hatred, and delusion. And these three forces in the mind are in the hub of the wheel of samsara. Uh, These three animals chase one another's tail with the boar, the pig being the head of the line, ignorance. So ignorance is the main factor That's making the wheel of samsara, this endless cycle of birth and death, continue. And so some more uh, quieter manifestations of the kalesis would be our hindrances. Um, And we haven't talked about them much yet, but I'll just name them here. So there's desire, aversion, restlessness, sleepiness or dullness doubt, and a few more, conceit, wrong view, shamelessness. I want to read a short passage by um, Ajahn Lee, who is an influential monk of the Thai forest tradition. He died in 1961. Um, But this little two paragraphs for me points to a useful attitude toward the defilements, which might appear as enemies. And this is called, his article is called The Demons of Defilement. He says, Even our enemies, when we become familiar with them, can become friends, our companions, our servants. When we can look at things in this way, both sides benefit. We benefit, and our maras benefit. So Mara, just the transliteral translation of Mara is demon, and it's the personification of the force, forces antagonistic to enlightenment. So I'll read that again. So we can look at things in this way. Both sides benefit. We benefit and our Maras benefit as well. In the time of the Buddha, for instance, the Buddha got so familiar with Mara that eventually Mara got converted and felt favorably inclined to the merit and skillfulness that the Buddha had developed. Once Mara had no more power over the Buddha, he, he paid homage to the Buddha, and he became a bodhisattva. In the future, he'll gain awakening as a fully self-awakened Buddha. So he benefited, and the Buddha, be- Buddha benefited. This is the nature of people with discernment. They can take bad things and turn them into good. The mother of Mara, ignorance, lies even deeper inside. Ignorance means not being acquainted with your own mind, mistaking your thinking for your mind, (coughs) mistaking your knowledge for the mind, thinking that your thoughts of the past or future are the mind, thinking that the body is the mind that feeling is the mind, that mental qualities are the mind, that the mind is the self. Not being able to separate these things from yourself, getting yourself all entangled, that's called ignorance. So I like the idea of alchemy and that there's power in what feels like these stuck places. And I I just want to address for a second a lens of helplessness because I think when we do feel sometimes entangled, uh, we can feel helpless to the forces in the mind. We can feel like they're a kind of prison and we don't know the way out. And we might see it as a personal failure. So there might be shame even that surrounds that. So I think it's important to hear that these defilements, these mental states that cloud the mind are universal. And some follow us almost to the end of our path. So our struggle is not unique. And there's no skirting around them, right? We all need to move through them. They all need to be understood. So when there is a personal shame about how we're practicing or a sense of helplessness, we can bring our gaze right there and look at that belief. And it's important that we bring the gaze there. Otherwise, we'll keep practicing through that lens, but that lens will be debilitating. So we can recognize it as a form of doubt. It can be seen, it can be named and felt in the body. So, sweetheart, this is just doubt. This is just shame. And it's like this. And it's not mine. And, you know, and we can know with some relief that these afflictive forces arise in the mind lawfully. You know, they're not there by accident. They're there due to specific conditions, uh, but they're not us. And so when we see that feeling of helplessness, you know, we can say, I feel doubt strongly and I'm going ahead. The Buddha said, the mind is by nature radiant. It's shining. It is because of visiting forces that we suffer. Sharon Salzberg had a brief commentary on that, which I love. She says, The Buddha didn't say that some people's minds are radiant and pure, but yours, well, not so much. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, he said, Everybody's mind is radiant. They're naturally occurring, these defilements, and... They can be known by awareness and understood by wisdom. I'm thinking of a a retreat that I was on with Upandita uh, years ago. Uh, He's an influential teacher, as many of you know, uh, from the Mahasisayada tradition. And... um, uh, in, in this Burmese tradition, when you go in to report to a teacher, um, it's not just you and the teacher. There's, you know, a translator usually. Maybe there's someone who's fanning the teacher. There's the person that's going to interview before you, and then there's the person that's interviewing after you. So any sense of privacy you had hoped for, like, <laughs> let it go, right? <laughs> so we're all exposed. And, and I remember a man, a yogi, that was reporting right before me. And I was sitting slightly behind him and I just was like watching his posture and, and he was just he was just saying, I'm I'm just a bad yogi, you know, I just I don't know how to practice. And and he was he just seemed a little a little devastated, a little like a confessional. That's what it felt like. He wasn't reporting, he was confessing. And Sayada Vivekananda, who was the teacher, Who was really fastidious? He writes down everything you say. He took out his notebook and he writes down, um, Oh, thinking that you are a bad yogi, thinking that you can't do the practice, and what else? You know, so um, he's like, has this sort of brightness in front of the, you know, and it was a real learning for me that oh, this is what needs to be seen. These are thoughts in the mind. These are beliefs happening. And I'm not sure if the man was sort of receiving that clearly, but I received that clearly, like, oh, this too. There's nothing outside practice, nothing outside the realm of practice. This can be seen. We start right where we are. For me, it's been useful to think of sort of the um, two branches of the ways we practice. uh, Just in helping me think about it, you know, we have the the branch of wisdom, right, and the branch of compassion. And so sometimes that's referred to as the wings of compassion and wisdom, right? Two wings of the bird, and both are crucial if the bird is going to fly. Um, and ultimately these two trajectories are not separate but as practices we can we can work with them in a separate way and so I want to talk first about the compassion wing <clears throat> so compassion you know as we talked about um, <clears throat> the other day so the quivering of the heart that opens to what is hard to bear so it's one of the uh, Brahma-viharas, um, which are considered immeasurable. Um, so when we're suffering, we can direct compassion toward ourselves. We can learn unconditional care for our own vulnerability. And it's what allows us to open to what is difficult. And courage is built into compassion. so we can make compassion a study and in a more general sense we can we can just study what moves the heart you know like what makes the heart open for us and and that can be anything that can be anything i was taking a yoga class not too long ago and i'm i make a regular practice of yoga you know really really attending to the body and mind as I moved through the practice. And one day the yoga teacher, just in the middle of the class, she put on some music and it was some sort of traditional Scandinavian folk song. I don't even know what it was, but it was really beautiful to me. And I just noticed, I just noticed this infusion from the heart. It was just like the heart open and that, And it just, there was this softness and warmth that spread through my body. And it made me realize that there was a little hardness, there was a little striving, that there wasn't an attitude um, of of sort of that kind of kindness that should be part of my practice. So it was just a moment, but just that soft opening heart brought brought everything into balance and so I'm reminded I'm reminded I need to bring this into what I do this softness of the heart um, because the work can be hard and we need that support <clears throat> so there are what's called near and far enemies of compassion. And I think we need to be aware of that when we're working with compassion, the far enemy, which is sort of the distant opposite of compassion is cruelty. And, and I bring it up because I think we can tend to be cruel to ourselves when we're dealing with an anger or we're dealing with, something we don't like, there can be a cruelty in the mental attitude. And what distinguishes cruelty is that we want to strike out or punish whatever is arising, you know, with another person or within ourselves. And we can have that attitude, for instance, toward our anger. We want to strike it. We want to extinguish it. Or we want to ignore it. And this is another kind of cruelty to ignore it. But in a funny way, we might imagine that striking at anger is skillful. That's why I bring it up specifically, because there can be that idea that that's an appropriate response. But it's actually the opposite. And then the near enemy is pity. And pity can mask as compassion, but it actually has within it some aversion. And you'll know pity when there's a sort of a sense of wallowing or kind of drowning. Uh, there's a soft quality, but it's too soft, right? There's like a an indulgence in the feeling. We're identified. So with compassion, we're not striking out, rejecting or ignoring, and we're not indulging. So we're holding our suffering in a soft embrace. Those are Analeya's words, soft embrace of mindfulness. I love that. So we can say, I care about this pain. I care about this pain. I feel like when I'm working with the brahma-viharas, I recognize what I call a softening. It feels like a movement from hardness to softness. And it's a powerful softness, not a weak softness. You know? Because I think there can be that idea too, like when the heart opens, there's somehow a weakness, or if there's softness, there's somehow a weakness. I learned uh, some years into my career as a professional dancer just about the importance of softening into the body and mind. When I started working with this company, I moved into the company just with a, a sort of a lot of fear and a lot of doubt. Like, why did they hire me? You know, like, I would be found out. Or, so, you know, those kind of fears that, that we sometimes can have. And it made me work really hard and it made me dance hard i really danced hard Um, and then one day i was sick and i came to work and and my attitude was i was a little nervous about going to work because i was really tired you know i was i was really sick but i felt like for whatever for whatever reason it wasn't a day i could miss for, for what was going on in the rehearsal so i just have this sort of compassion just just be easy when just go through the steps you'll be fine. and I learned something about about release, you know and softness and how the body organized and how the energy moved and how much efforting I was doing that was not necessary and driven by fear. So this was just a, a powerful moment and and just on a physical level like, even noticing patterns of holding the breath, you know, because maybe it was a difficult balance. So whenever I approached a difficult balance, there would be this holding of the breath and how difficult it is for the body to organize when the breath is held and how difficult it is to feel the body when the breath is held or the body is hard. I was thinking about the softness and the power of water <clears throat> Cecilia, who's on retreat here, Cecilia and I were up by the North Shore um, last month, I think, and we were standing on the rocks by the water mm-hmm. and just like feeling how smooth the rocks were and and the holes and the curves that were formed by the water, you know, moving against them. It was so beautiful, and just like appreciating that the water is so soft, but with time, it has this power to completely shape and mold these rocks. Um, and it was just a, a nice image for me, and it, it made me think too that that's the kind of patience that we need, like, like the water that will again and again and again, kind of meet what's ever happening, and in a way um, patience, it needs to be as persevering as the mental habits, you know, that long time momentum of our mental habits, like that patience, that can meet that. So the second wing of awakening is our wisdom practice, vipassana, which is to see things as they are. And it's to see things, not just clearly, but very clearly. You know, and as we were talking about this morning, in a sustained way, touching the object. And when we can do this with constancy, there is a perceptual shift and a movement toward right view. And so I I just want to go into a little bit of detail about right view and what right view recognizes. So first of all, um, you know, right view recognizes a discrimination of objects, right? So awareness isn't fuzzy. In the physical body, we know the difference between warmth and coolness, hardness and softness. You know, whatever is appearing, we know we can discriminate. In the mental realm, we can distinguish between pleasant and unpleasant. We know the specific characteristics of any given emotion or hindrance. We come to know the nature of embarrassment, self-doubt, confusion, humiliation, dread and we can begin to discern what thoughts take us to hell and what thoughts take us away towards something more free, more spacious. You know, and they are observed in the mind, in the narratives that we build, thoughts in the mind which are so quick and light, yet powerful. And we can know them in our bodies, which will always express energetically what is happening in the mind. So there's the discrimination of objects. And then there's the universal aspects that awareness comes to know. All conditioned objects, which can be known by the mind, share three characteristics. And so we know these. It's the characteristic of dukkha, or the Inherent imperfection of things, right? The unsatisfactory nature. So dukkha, impermanence and not self. So when we're tasting something, for instance, you know, we begin to recognize in that taste that that taste doesn't have any real capacity to satisfy us, right? We can recognize that that taste goes away. It's impermanent. And we can recognize that we are not that taste. And when we can do that with objects like taste or feeling the sensations of the breath, then when we're in a a mental state like anger where there's more identification, it's more likely that we can recognize this anger is just dukkha. This anger is impermanent. This anger is not self. So again, coming back to these states that just are really hard to work with, where there's strong identification so you know we've talked about cultivating an anchor finding a place in the body that we can feel as a refuge if we can be steady with our breath then we can be steady with deeply unpleasant mental states like self-hatred or loss And we learn in both cases that we don't need to assert control. The equanimity in the knowing mind can observe the movement of mental activity. And this is a really beautiful fact. When we're mindful of wholesome states, they are they grow, and when we're mindful of unwholesome states, they diminish. Like that to me is a miracle. Hmm. And then there's the acronym that Michelle McDonald um, came up with, RAIN. So I know many of you know this, right? So R-A-I-N, recognize, accept, investigate, non-identification we were talking in one of the small groups today with recognizing just just how rec- how useful it can be just to recognize that suffering is happening just noting suffering suffering is happening this is just dukkha and we recognize it as a visitor And then there's accepting, accepting the storm, accepting the raging storm, right? The truth is we want to get rid of it. We want to accept it so it will go away. That's kind of, that's kind of what we do. Right. This to me is the most uh, mysterious of the four, this acceptance. It feels like there are many levels that acceptance can happen. But real, thorough acceptance where there's non-resistance, like when everything yields, when everything drops away, I feel like that's a moment where the truth of emptiness also can emerge, you know, when the clinging of self also dissolves. So we can kind of taste our acceptance, like like our tentative acceptance, our full acceptance, and just sort of notice what we're able to do, you know, just before this talk, sitting here, was like, I, I saw my mind. I can't wait till this is over. <laughs> and, and it was like, and I said, okay, this is like, this is like not acceptance, and this is what we do, right? We just, we bear it, we just bear it, and we can't wait for this moment. <laughs> you know. And so it's like, I'm just really playing, like, what does that mean? Oh, it's just full yielding, and I saw, oh, it can happen in moments, and then a thought arises, and resistance appears, the eye is contracted, and that can happen, like, again and again and again. So this has so much mystery, and I, and I also asked the question, you know, what am I so afraid of? What's so scary about fully accepting? What's so scary it's a really interesting question, you know, this, this image, this word, the unbinding, it's so attractive, you know. Maybe I can just take a chance. <laughs> I want to read Thich Han's words. <clears throat> he says, <clears throat> and this is uh, not unlike what Ajahn Lee said, but in a different way. <clears throat> He says, treat your anger with the utmost respect and tenderness, for it is no other than yourself. Do not suppress it. Simply be aware of it. Awareness is like the sun. When it shines on things, they are transformed. When you are aware that you are angry, your anger is transformed. If you destroy your anger, you destroy the Buddha. For Buddha and Mara are of the same essence. Mindfully dealing with anger is like taking the hand of a little brother. Now that feels radical, to hold the hand of our anger, to hold it like a friend, that kind of intimacy. Utejania was asked about, um, in in an interview they were talking about um, depression, his longtime struggle with depression, and the interviewer asked, was it acceptance that changed it? And he answered, that was the main thing, complete acceptance. I saw I was helpless to do anything, so I just let it be there. But I could examine it do something with myself i couldn't do anything to it but i could investigate it and come to know it so how do we investigate it's a really interesting question when we have a doubting mind how do we investigate so I think we look at the view that's in the mind. We look at the stories that are in the mind that feel real to us. What words are moving through? What images do you see? And then look with a real like clarity. What are those images? Are they in color? Are they black and white? Are they cloudy? Are, are they fuzzy around the edges? Do they come and go? You know, like, take a real specific interest. Note the unpleasantness. Note how it changes. And sometimes in just that sort of, you know, examination of, of what's going on in the mind uh, that felt so intractable will suddenly feel porous. It will suddenly feel Less formidable. And I think it's important to favor the body while investigating, particularly when the emotions are really strong and the narrative is really seductive, to come to the body. The sensations of the body are relatively concrete, and we can absorb into them. We can actually be interested in them. We can make it a mission to know how every defilement shows up differently on a physical level. That's really interesting. And we monitor our stability, right? Monitor our stability. Maybe if we get really solid and clear and stable in watching the body, maybe we can dip back into the mind, right? Just dip back into the mind and stay there until we feel ourselves maybe again overwhelmed and then we can come back to the body. And if we get overwhelmed in the body, we can change the channel. Just change the channel. Go to some pleasant sensation or take a walk, open the eyes, take a job, be physically active. That's one thing I learned also as a dancer, to really shift the sand. All I have to do is like take a dance class, go to a rehearsal, and things that were plaguing me suddenly are distant, you know? And the mind is like that. What's really powerful in one moment can really be gone in another moment. And physical activity is a wonderful way just to balance the mind. And then the fourth fourth step, non-identification. And, you know, as we talked about earlier, you know, I have just found that useful, quiet note of not mine, just showing up in just the right moments when I feel that identification strongly, not mine. I, wanna, uh, I just want to mention Ajahn Suchito for a moment, um, who's a, a really lovely monk from the uh, Thai forest tradition, and he talks a lot about body, a lot about softness. And um, I was listening to a talk, he said, and, and he was saying, when there are difficult perceptions like betrayal and grief, the body shuts down. the heart shuts down Um, and it's in the stillness of our retreat where there's an opportunity to allow these perceptions space we cannot allow them to arise we can feel them we can let the energy move I think about like animals in this way sometimes and how we're animals and how creatures are really our, our brethren, these nervous systems that we share, and, uh, how animals feel. It's like when I stroke my cat, you know, and he's a cool cat, he's not like a warm fuzzy cat, he's kind of a cool cat, but when I stroke his his belly you know it's like he'll close his eyes and his paws will just paw the air and there's just this sweetness and i have this medita you know this you know because he's he's feeling safe he's probably feeling some kind of delight you know that there's something beautiful uh in in what's happening um i was in marshall minnesota once and um and this this is a memory that that haunts me but i was i was in town on the road and i thought i heard a sound i thought at first were sirens and what it was was a truck of pigs that were screaming um and it was so it was so startling and heart heartbreaking Like to hear the screams of of animals and just feeling like, ah, I know that kind of uncertainty, I know that trembling, you know. One of my teachers, um, her mother uh, really suffered during World War II, and um, my teacher would talk about, as she was growing up, how her mother would howl. And she really appreciated um, growing up in a house where that was okay, you know, where there was that permission. And so we can remember that, you know, if we don't feel, the heart can shut down, the body can shut down. And there's something about. You know, when we can feel these places that are scary to feel, it can grow our confidence, because we can know ourselves and know ourselves well. And there's a beautiful poem. Um, This is by a Japanese poet, Izumi Shikibu. And she says, Watching the moon at dawn, solitary and mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. So this talk is sort of about working with the big stuff, but I want to say that how valuable and important it is to practice with the small stuff, to learn how to do it. Right before coming here on on the weekend, I was was at Lowe's hardware store. We were getting blinds for our window. Um, And it ended up just being a difficult experience. It was like a twilight zone at Lowe's. There were there were like many people, employees that were working. There were like no customers, but there was like nobody who could help me. And I go to one person and they say, ah, and I go another person, they say, ah, and I'd ring the bell and nobody would come. And it was just sort of this adventure in frustration. And finally a, a woman came who just had a chip on her shoulder. Like I was annoying. I was getting in the way of her day. And we had some difficult, you know, it, it was just difficult after difficult, right? And, and you know, I, was, I had just come from retreat, so I'm just kind of right there with it. I'm noticing the mind. I'm noticing the body. Rah, 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 you know? um, but, you know, when I got home, when I got home, and I was four hours. I was four hours at Lowe's. It's like, how did that happen? You know, like, <laughs> But I got home, Mark and I were going to go to the store, and um, and I just felt, I felt like, oh, there's like this stuff, there's this hardness in the body, it was like I was wearing a coat. And I said, Mark, just give me a minute, just give me a minute. Yeah, and I lied down on the couch, and I just felt what I was feeling, and there was so much, you know, it was like all this stuff through the whole front of the body, and you know, and all, oh, like, these little narratives about, you know, not being seen or not being respected or, you know, like, just just infinite, like, just things. And it was so great. Just this very low-stakes thing, right? I was not invested in Lowe's or the shades I was buying. <laughs> you know, yeah. But but to, to practice, you know, because it touched something real, touched something deeper than what was going on at Lowe's, right? So we... We practice with these things, and, and it felt really wholesome, and I, and I had an image just like after working with it. You know, I don't know if you know the paintings of Frida Kahlo, but sometimes she just has like plants growing out of her. And I felt like, oh, this is what it's, it's like tending a garden as I lie down here. It's like tending a garden. I have a story, but it's a little long, so I think I'll read it next time. And instead, I'll just close with um, a poem, maybe two poems. So, uh, this is called Awakening Now by Dana Falls. She says... uh, why wait for your awakening the moment your eyes are open seize the day would you hold back when the beloved beckons would you deliver your litany of sins like a child's collection of seashells prized and labeled no i can't step across the threshold you say eyes downcast i'm not worthy i'm afraid and my motives aren't pure I'm not perfect, and surely I haven't practiced nearly enough. My meditation isn't deep, and my prayers are sometimes insincere. I still chew my fingernails, and the refrigerator isn't clean. Do you value your reasons for staying small, more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself now is the only time you have to be whole now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain please oh please don't continue to believe in your disbelief this is the day of your awakening And I'll end with our beautiful Rumi and his poem, The Guest House. So this being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond.